Making the case for a return to Enceladus, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. NASA Jet Propulsion Lab researcher Morgan Cable balances a lot of tasks, and sometimes she balances herself on a mountain unicycle. You'll have to listen to the end of our recent conversation to learn about that. Along the way, you'll hear her passionate plea for a mission to Saturn's tiny but very active moon. Morgan is lead author on a paper that lays out the reasons. How many spaceships are parked at the International Space Station? That space trivia quiz from Bruce Betts has generated some very entertaining answers and a first-time winner. There's a stunning picture of Galaxy Centaurus A at the top of the September 10th issue of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter. It combines images taken at X-ray, optical, infrared, and radio wavelengths. Below it are these and other headlines. Perseverance, the 2020 Mars rover, has now collected two samples from a rock dubbed Rochette. Exploration of Jezero Crater is really rolling along now. China's Chang'e 5 is on the move again. It may be headed back to orbiting the moon after returning lunar samples to Earth, or it may head to a near-Earth asteroid. Nice to have choices, I guess. Cosmonauts and astronauts are staying busy outside the International Space Station, activating the new Nauka module and preparing to install huge new solar panels. And you may have heard that launch of the James Webb Space Telescope is targeted for December 18th. Godspeed, JWST. You can always read the downlink or subscribe to it for free at planetary.org, which is also where you can find the brand new September Equinox edition of our quarterly magazine, The Planetary Report. The online version of this week's Planetary Radio includes a conversation with my society colleague Kate Howells about what's in this issue. You can hear it at planetary.org slash radio. Who isn't in favor of a return to Enceladus? Probably no one listening to this show, and certainly not Morgan Cable or the many co-authors of her recent paper on this topic. Morgan is a research scientist and group supervisor in the Astrobiology and Oceans Worlds Group at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. She worked on the Cassini mission as a Project Science Systems Engineer and is now part of the Europa Clipper mission that will visit that ocean moon of Jupiter. Her work and research have taken her from Iceland to the Atacama Desert in Chile with a stop on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. In 2018, she was named by the American Chemical Society as one of the talented 12 rising stars in chemistry. Morgan very generously made time to talk with me a few days ago on what was her birthday. Morgan Cable, welcome to Planetary Radio for a long overdue conversation. Very happy to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. You know, I think I already told you that your colleague at JPL, Linda Spilker, has been telling me for ages that uh, I, I should get you uh, in front of a microphone as our guest. My fault, I wasn't until I saw a recent article in Wired magazine that I thought, oh, Morgan Cable, yeah, Linda said I should talk with her. Really where I want to start 
is uh, an, another article that you did recently for the Planetary Science Journal. You were the lead author among many distinguished colleagues, including Linda and our past guest, uh, Carolyn Porco, who was listed as the second author. We will provide a link to the science case for a return to Enceladus on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. Uh, but I want to thank you for it. I read it. It is a compelling case that you build for Enceladus and even a very exciting one. So uh, congratulations on that and thank you as well. Oh, well, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to write in many ways. Enceladus makes that case beautifully on its own and it's a wonderful story to be able to tell. How important to this effort is what we learn from Cassini over its 13 years in the Saturnian system in, in helping you to, to build the case that you make? Cassini is the reason that we now have these incredible insights into Enceladus as well as many other moons, uh, the rings, and uh, knowledge of Saturn itself. It's such an incredible, almost a, a mini solar system in and of itself, the complexity, the diversity of worlds that we see there. Before we built and launched Cassini, we thought that many of the places in the outer solar system were just cold, dead, boring worlds. And <laughs> uh-huh. we got that notion completely turned upside down thanks to the amazing discoveries that Cassini made. Don't you love how the solar system just has an endless series of surprises for us? It's fantastic. It's one of the reasons I love my job so much. One of the things that came out in your article, uh, we all know the great success that Cassini had as it flew through those plumes rising out of the surface of Enceladus, those those wonderful tiger stripes, so-called, and that it found, you know, some simple organics. It really wasn't equipped to do more than that. But the, something that really struck me in your paper is the work that that indicates that even the more complex organics that Cassini was able to detect could be, could be fragments of much more complex organics that have, that have simply broken down. I found that very striking. Yes, this is very exciting work uh, that's done by the leads of two instruments. One of them is called the Cosmic Dust Analyzer, and another one is called the Ion and Neutral Mass Spectrometer. And these two instruments were aboard Cassini, and the the PIs, the principal investigators of those instruments, came together uh, to work on this this analysis. Uh, one of the cool things that Cassini did, as you mentioned, it was brave enough to fly through this plume of gas and ice grains spewing out of Enceladus's south pole. It did that multiple times and at different speeds. Now, this is really cool. You can sort of picture maybe uh, if you grew up in a place where it snows. Uh, I did not. I grew up in Florida, but I can still picture sticking your head out of the car window and trying to catch a snowflake. Right. And so Uh that might be easier to do at, say, 10 miles an hour than 50. But now imagine you're going 7 to 17 kilometers a second, which is many times faster than a speeding bullet. That ice grain, that snowflake will go poof, essentially, at those speeds. And you can then analyze the bits that are inside. But depending on how fast you're going, at some slower speeds, you can volatilize, which means uh, get into the gas phase, something going from solid to gas, and you can also ionize the things that are in there. Now, that's important because a lot of these instruments that I mentioned, they can only see things that have a charge, things that are ions. 
And so at those slower speeds, we could look at sort of the bigger molecules that are there. But at these faster speeds, we noticed that we had more smaller bits. And so you're exactly right. That tells us that potentially uh, some of these larger molecules are breaking up at those really fast speeds. So that gives us some hints and some clues as to the larger molecules that are outside of the mass range that these instruments were capable of seeing. Because when Cassini was built, we didn't think that liquid water was out this far. We Cassini was not meant to be a search for life mission. And so its instruments were geared towards looking at small molecules that we wanted to, to characterize and understand, not things like proteins or uh, bits of cells. And hopefully a future mission will be able to tackle that problem. Proteins and bits of cells. Okay, that's a that's a nice little tease for what we may uh, be reaching in this conversation. If we were building Cassini now, and in a sense we are, because the Great Dragonfly mission is is currently being put together, and Europa Clipper is even farther along. But if we were doing this now, do we have the instruments? Could we build the instruments that, had they been on Cassini, would have detected these? much more complex uh, compounds, if they're there. We think so. A lot of development has gone on to mature instruments to address this question of, are we alone? Is Earth the only place that's inhabited, or are we just one example of many different inhabited worlds in our own cosmic backyard and beyond? We've seen a lot of these instruments tested on Mars, which is a great proving ground. But now, thanks to discoveries of Cassini and other missions like Galileo and even the Voyagers, we now know liquid water exists in a variety of different places in our solar system. And one thing we've learned is that if you follow the water, you can look for signatures of life in these environments that we call habitable environments. That means that they may have the conditions suitable for life as we know it, potentially life as we don't know it too in some cases. And so that's why we're developing these instruments to search these habitable environments uh, for evidence of life. Let's talk about what a mission, a return to Enceladus might look like. In the piece that, uh, that you were lead author for, you talk about different approaches to this, landers, orbiters, uh, whether an orbiter should orbit Saturn, as Cassini did, or whether it should orb- orbit Enceladus. I mean, what would your preference be? Oh, gosh, I would love to do all of those things because you learn different things at different stages of a mission. Uh, so a few other studies have looked at different mission architectures. In fact, there's one in that same issue of the Planetary Science Journal uh, talking hmm. about something called an orbilander. This is a joint orbiter that then would land on Enceladus. And the interesting thing is you can get a lot from orbit, especially at Enceladus or even by flybys. Uh, you don't even necessarily need to land to collect some of that precious ocean material. Enceladus is the only world where we know for sure it's spewing free sample from its ocean into space. So there's a lot that you can do by scooping up some of those grains and sampling the gases to understand that environment. Ultimately, it would be great to also land. You can collect more sample that way. And for some of these sensitive instruments, if you're looking for trace species, that can be important to do. And at JPL, we're even developing some concepts that could get down into those crevasses and potentially reach the ocean directly, which in my book, that would be the home run. Uh, But I think we've got a lot of exciting concepts that depending on 
what we can afford to do with the timing. There are a lot of different places to explore in the solar system. We've got a menu of options we could choose from. As you and I speak, I, I learned anyway just a few minutes ago that Perseverance on Mars just made its second successful collection of material from Jezero Crater. Woo-hoo. And, you know, we, yeah, no. <laughs> and especially woohoo when we someday get them back here on Earth into uh, laboratories. Uh, what I'm really thinking of in this case is planetary protection and everything that had to be done to make sure that those sample tubes were maybe the cleanest things humans have ever created on Perseverance and that the rest of the spacecraft, we minimize the chance for contaminating anything that might be on Mars. Well, okay, here we are talking about Enceladus. Are these concerns also for the community as you you talk about, you know, learning what we can about Enceladus? Absolutely. Uh, What would be worse than finally finding life for the first time in human history somewhere else and then realizing that we put it there, that we had accidentally brought it with us. And it's definitely a concern. Uh, That's one reason why flyby type missions that still orbit around Saturn in some respects may be the safest because you can still Mm. fly through the plume and sample it, but then you can do that spacecraft disposal somewhere else, somewhere that is less habitable. Um, Maybe Saturn itself or some of the other moons that don't have any evidence of liquid water oceans. Anything that would land on a place like Enceladus would have to have some way to guarantee that it would not contaminate that subsurface ocean for a certain period of time. There is an international agreement through something called a COSPAR, where we have planetary protection requirements that each mission has to meet. And given that we found all these amazing habitable worlds, of course, the scientists want to go there, but then planetary protection says, well, you've got to go there carefully and not contaminate that world. We all definitely want to search these worlds for evidence of life, but we need to do so safely so that they're preserved and kept pristine. We know how almost ridiculously complex uh, sample return from Mars is, uh, and yet it's underway. Have you considered getting material back from Enceladus uh, to labs on Earth? Oh, yes, we have considered. Sample return, at least a couple of concepts have been proposed, and uh, I encourage you. I think we cited a couple of those papers uh, in our report, but there are other places online where those might be available. The one issue with Enceladus is time, right? Space is big. Saturn is 10 times further out than Earth is from from the sun. It's massive distances, and that takes a while to traverse. Uh, Cassini took about seven years to get to the Saturn system. You can imagine a sample return mission would be about double that. There is work underway for cryogenic sample storage such that Mm. we could have that option. So that's definitely something to consider because we have worked very hard to advance a lot of these instruments to be able to send them on these robotic explorers. But of course, they're not going to be quite as good as the massive instruments we have here in laboratories that are too large to to send on a spacecraft. Do you have any doubt that what we are learning and will learn in the future about Enceladus and Titan um, will help us learn more about our own pale blue dot? It is probably going to blow our minds in ways that we can't even predict Every time we send something somewhere else, it requires us to mature and advance, develop these technologies that end up having some benefits here, as well as just the the sheer knowledge that we'll learn 
again, we only have a sample size of one when it comes to life. And as a scientist, that's terrible. Oh gosh, you can't make any any real theories or, or, or anything based on that small of a sample size. You need at least three, right? Ideally tens or even hundreds of examples before you can draw a line or make a claim about a trend. And so by studying these other habitable worlds, we can see where Earth lies on the spectrum and where other places lie on the spectrum of habitability and really start to understand better the universe and our place in it. Before we finish, I don't know where you find the time, but you uh, obviously enjoy not just doing science, but sharing your love of it. I noted that um, you were in 2018 given the uh, JPL's Bruce Murray Award, our beloved uh, co-founder of the Planetary Society, for excellence in education and public engagement. You have a lot of these sorts of activities, these STEM activities going on. But just as an example of one that that made my eyes go kind of wide, what do you do in South Korea each year? And, and is that still underway? Oh, gosh. Yes. So the Bruce Murray Award was a tremendous honor. And it's such a privilege to be able to work in a place where I can do this outreach and help expand the excitement, the sheer excitement and love of what I do and inspire the next generation. And I've been fortunate enough to help manage a space camp in South Korea at a Challenger Learning Center. This is uh, one of these uh, places that was started by the families of the Challenger astronauts. And there are many throughout the U.S. There are just a few internationally. And uh, as far as I know, I think this is the only one in Asia uh, that's in South Korea. They've got an observatory there. It's such an amazing uh, place. And to be able to go and teach third through sixth graders, some of the amazing things that we are able to do as scientists and as engineers. Usually it's it's just funny. It seems to happen in the summer. Maybe I'm I've been working in the lab and I haven't been able to get something going or, you know, the laser's broken or something. And so I go to the space camp and these kids look up at you and they're like, "You work for NASA?" you're awesome. And you're like, you know what? I am awesome. This is awesome. And it just sort of, it, it really scratches that itch and makes, makes me remember why I do what I do and how incredibly lucky I am. So I love it. And unfortunately, because of the global pandemic, we haven't been able to do the camp for the last two summers, but we're really hoping uh, to pick up again where we left off and uh, see some of those teachers and hopefully uh, see some of those students again and, and find out what they've been up to. Well, of course you're awesome. All right, I've saved the most important question of the interview for last, and here it is. Are you still mountain unicycling? Yes, I, I might be. It's a really <laughs> fun sport. Actually, not a lot of women do it. So women out there, if you're interested in learning how, mountain unicycling, is it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's the only thing that I have found where I have to be completely focused on what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I can't be thinking about that that meeting I've got to go to or that presentation I've got to work on. I have to be completely present because if you're not, if you let your mind drift, you know you you tend to to fall pretty easily and biff it, and that's no fun. So um, yeah, there are a lot of great trails in the area here in Southern California, and I just really enjoy it. So that's my meditation in motion, I guess. Stay focused, Morgan, because we need you uh, for many, many more years to keep conducting and leading this research. 
and uh, explaining it to us as well. Thank you so much. This has just been delightful. Best of continued success with, with all of this work. And yes, let's do check in after that decadal survey uh, comes out, hopefully in spring of t- 2022. Best of luck with that as well. Oh, that would be amazing. You're such an incredibly, you're such a wonderful outreach and, and uh, the words are not not here. But thank you so much. You're You're just amazing. <laughs> Those words will do just fine. Thank you so much, Morgan. NASA JPL research scientist Morgan Cable. By the way, happy birthday, Morgan. Morgan shares much more in our extended conversation at planetary.org slash radio, including a fascinating story about the synthesis of so-called organic co-crystals under conditions that might be found on Saturn's big moon Titan. There could be biological implications there could be biological implications to this research. I'll be right back with Bruce Betts here on Planetary Radio. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. Hi, everyone. It's Bruce, Program Manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. Your support made this happen. Now we need help to continue the adventure. Gifts in support of our extended mission will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Details are at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He's been with me. Wow, we're going on 19 years now of doing uh, the show together. (laughs) What? (laughs) I know. I know the feeling. That's Bruce Betts coughing into your uh, ears there, into your earbuds. Welcome. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here for the last little while. <laughs> no, no, we're going to stick around. I, pr- I promise. Yeah. Uh, because we're we're just having too good a time looking up at that night sky. Ooh, and and I just can't get enough of your clean segues. It is cool in the evening sky right now, having the two brightest planets up there. You have Venus in the west after sunset looking super bright. And you got Jupiter over in the east looking really bright. Saturn's to Jupiter's right looking yellowish and not as bright. Uh, And between Jupiter, Saturn, and then over to Venus, you got a bunch of constellations. So you got Sagittarius, the teapot of the sky in terms of what it looks like as an asterism. And uh, you got uh, Scorpius with the bright reddish star and Teres. So a party in the evening sky. I had a conversation with my uh, five-year-old grandson yesterday, and we were debating whether Venus is stuck because it appears to have been for months really high in that uh, western sky. Uh, But I I told him that I would ask you about this. Is Venus stuck? (laughs) Uh, I can't tell you. No, Venus is most definitely not stuck, but the way the orbits work, it has indeed been hanging out in a similar location in the sky, but it's because both Venus and Earth are moving 
And so you get different patterns in the sky, depending on what's going on. Someday I'll really blow his mind and, and show him retrograde. <laughs> retrograde. Planets <laughs> going backwards. Yeah. It, it's just because everything's moving rather than everything's stuck. On to this week in space history. 1965, Matt. They named a show after you. Lost in Space premiered. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. I'm found in space. That's, that's where I'd like to find myself, actually. We'd like to find you there as well. Two <laughs> amazing outer planet missions ended during this week. Galileo in 2003 and Cassini in 2017. Uh, both mm. uh crashed into, intentionally into the giant planets they were exploring, Jupiter and Saturn, respectively. We move on to... Random space fact. <laughs> that was a good one. Clever. I like that one. Oh, yay. Finally, after 19 years. This just... People need to know this. In orbital mechanics, there is a thing called a pork chop plot. I'm assuming... Some orbital dynamics guys were really hungry. They plotted something and they thought, hey, that looks like a pork chop, kind of like in the cartoons where the other character turns into a steak. But a pork chop plot is a chart that shows contours of equal characteristic energy against combinations of launch date and arrival date for interplanetary missions. So they're kind of like fuel efficiency maps to figure out when you want to launch and when you'll get there. And it looks, if you squint and are really out of it, the plots look kind of like pork chops. This is another example of that uh, lesson that uh, we've been uh, trying to teach people for years. Never, ever put your science on paper just before dinner. Oh, that's for sure. Also tends to be wrong just before you eat, but that's another story. <laughs> All right, we go on to the trivia contest. And I asked you, as of September 1st, 2021, how many spacecraft are docked or visiting the International Space Station? How'd we do, Matt? Not the biggest response we've ever had, but but one of the most entertaining, I think. Ooh, Here, Here's the answer. Yeah. Here's the answer from uh, Poet Laureate Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Northrop Grumman's Cygnus Freighter takes a docking port SpaceX has a pair of ships, the crew and cargo sort. Russia has a Soyuz and a Progress 7-8. If we send much more, they'll have to stand in line and wait. <laughs> Always impressive how he works these answers. wonder how long it takes. That's five, I believe. Is, is that correct? Five is indeed correct, what's hanging out there right now. He named them all. Well, what a relief for you, Glenn Bizeau in uh, New Brunswick, Canada, because, uh, Glenn, you were chosen by Random.org, and sure enough, Glenn said, five ships as well. So congratulations uh, up there in NB, Glenn. You are going to be getting yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. Congratulations. <laughs> what do you got for next time? What was the largest telescope during the 19th century? So during the 1800s, at any time during the 1800s, what was the largest oh. telescope by primary mirror diameter, the usual way telescopes are measured? Biggest telescope in the 19th century? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Gosh, you know, I think I know the biggest one in the 18th century, but not the 19th. Great question. I think the, the answer is interesting and will lead people in interesting directions. 
You've got until Wednesday, September 22nd at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, we'll go with that asteroid again. You know, the <laughs> ones from the from the Planetary Society. Uh, that's if uh, if you're the winner of this latest quiz from uh, the quiz master, the chief scientist, Bruce Betts. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about why a question mark looks like a question mark. Thank you, and good night. I don't know. I think it looks like a pork chop scanning on end myself. Mm. He, he <laughs> go, have, go have lunch. He is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who can't wait to dive into our solar system's other oceans. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. Ad Astro.